0: I want to like know my creators, the details of their life. I want to know their motivations. I want to know what they think about. It. I want to know their fears, their anxieties, like their life struggles. I tell all my, the creators that I work with, like my goal is so that you guys are like 30 years old and, and happy and like optimized for happiness. I hope that like one day I'm at your guys' like wedding and I'm able to like witness you guys as parents and adults and like, you know, like I want to be able to see that progression. I can't do that for 10 people. So Anyway, for me, I think I've found fulfillment and I've found passion in like picking particular people and having large amounts of impact in their lives rather than have picking, you know, a wider net of people and having more shallow levels of impact in their lives. Where now things have progressed are is like, hey, now I found a business that I was able to co-found with a creator being creator now. And have that become something that is like, wow, this business is actually, this is really exciting. And this is like a very interesting iteration on management. And maybe Creator Now can actually become the thing that I become the real entrepreneur around.
1: Hey guys, this is Jeremy, and you're listening to episode number 24 of Backstage Careers, the podcast where I interview the people who are working behind the scenes with some of the biggest entrepreneurs and creators out there. In this episode, I talked to Zach honorvar who is the best manager for not one, but two huge YouTube channels you might know of. That's ARAC and Yes Theory. He also manages the Chiki Boyos, two TikTokers who have over 10 million followers on the platform. What's unique about Zach's management style is that instead of managing a dozen clients like a lot of other managers do, he's decided to manage only three and go all in on them. That allows him to go beyond the basic brand deals and merch drops and instead partner up with his clients for the long run to build massive businesses and brands. So in this episode, we go deep on what a YouTuber business looks like. We talk about the business strategies behind Yes Series documentaries, merch, podcast launches, and community building. And we also talk about how he's partnered up with ARAC to create the number one community for aspiring entrepreneurs and why they're planning to raise money to scale the business and take it to the next level. And before diving into that, we start the episode off by talking about Zach's entrepreneurial background as a teenager, as well as his experience working as an early employee at Shopify, and how both of those contributed to him growing into the manager that he is today. And last thing, I really would love your input on a decision I'm considering. So I've been doing deep dives on my guest's background story, like going back to high school, college, and early jobs before working behind the scenes. And I'm considering cutting that out and skipping directly to how the person got a job behind the scenes and diving straight into the nitty gritty details of what the work behind the scenes looked like, business strategy, et cetera. So if you're listening to this episode, I'd really love to get your thoughts on that. You can let me know by DMing me on Instagram or Twitter at Jeremy John All right, without further ado, let's dive in. Just a little background before, and there's another podcast that was really good uh, on my social life with Jacob Kelly. Uh, he, he did an amazing job, like really digging deep into the background. So I'm not gonna go as deep as him. I wanna focus more on like, I guess the stuff that's been happening in the last year, like you mentioned. But just to give some background for people that, that don't know you, I want to start with the entrepreneurial stuff. What has your entrepreneurial journey looked like? And let's start like from the very beginning. Let's start from like high school or middle school. I want to learn a little more about like the different projects you worked on, just like high level. I saw this morning you tweeted like, start a company in your 20s. I thought that'd be a good good place to start off. Of like, why?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I did tweet that this morning uh, before I started my drive to the office. I have always very much appreciated and admired entrepreneurs. I think there's like a level of courage and passion that goes into starting something from scratch that... I've always been drawn to, I think the earliest understanding or like memory I have around wanting to be entrepreneurial was, I think it came from like lack of money growing up and understanding that money brought freedom. I think that was like very much something my parents and my mom emphasized to me was, you know, if you have money, you can afford these things, you can live a better life. And we didn't grow up with much. So like that was very much prominent. Oh crap. I can't get that because we don't have money. I don't know. I think the the concept of like taking one and turning it to two, taking two and turning it to four. Like I understood that at a very basic level. So the first place where like I put that into action was I would go to Costco with my mom and buy bulk boxes of chocolate bars. And I knew, I I you can call it consumer behavior, but I knew what the kids at school liked to eat, and uh, what chocolate bars were their favorite. And so that I would just buy boxes of those, and then I would go to school and like sell it to kids at lunch. Also in Toronto, schools are very multicultural and diverse. There's a ton of immigrant kids from different countries all around the world. And one thing all immigrant kids most times can relate to is when they went to elementary school, their parents would send them to schools with like these funky lunches that were from ethnic countries. And a lot of immigrant kids, myself included, hold on to like a lot of like embarrassment around bringing these funky lunches to school. So all of them would always look to buy candy from the vending machine or from the cafeteria at lunch, so I knew I could sell chocolate bars to them. So I would buy them in bulk and then sell them individually. Save my money, buy basketball cards and hats and shoes.
1: Nice. <laughs> so the uh, candy bar vending machine was like a competitor. <laughs> it was like, how do I diversify? How do I? Uh... I was
0: I was trying to undercut them with price.
1: <laughs>
0: what do you learn from that, like early on? I think just like confidence. I think all these iterations of projects that I've launched were little bits of like incremental confidence that these things can be done and they're not that difficult in practice. And while they have their complexities, you can do it. And it was always like a the next thing felt less daunting because I had done this thing. So in high school had other entrepreneurial things that I did. And then in university, I had different entrepreneurial things that I did. And I felt like it was always like this progression of difficulty and complexity in the things that I was taking on. And I think that they were all building blocks, so to speak. And I think that's where I comes from. Like the the messaging of start a business in your twenties is while we're young, it's so much easier to start something and to get this experience. And I think we make starting a business this like huge thing that has to be like, we have to set off to start something with million dollar aspirations that are going to become our version of Apple and Facebook. And I think that that's just like the wrong way of thinking about business and entrepreneurship. I think entrepreneurship and business can be about making some side cash. It can be about learning skills. It can be about like, hey, if you, I think if you're in your teens or if you're in your twenties and you can put. Anything from thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars aside, and say I'm going to use this to start a business, and I expect to lose every dime, but I'm going to learn, and I'm going to try my best to not lose every single dime and to turn this and flip it into double or triple. That experience, in my opinion, builds more skills than working at any job, and it will build a wider array of skills that will be more transferable to going and getting a really good job yeah. uh, than than doing a nine to five job. And so that's where I think in, in your twenties, it's really time for skill development and a lot of skills are best developed through entrepreneurship. In my opinion.
1: Definitely. Yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, what you mentioned as well is like, it's kind of like a video game where I have like making your first sale for like a lot of people just like, it's scary, you know, like when, if you've never done it, it's scary. Right. And so like, if you do that first sale, like in your teenage years in high school or like even like middle school, like selling, like, a chocolate bar or something like that then like the next thing is like the next problem is going to be easier right and then it's like it's kind of becomes your baseline
0: exactly yeah
1: and then like the investment theory i think is really interesting of like hey like i have ten thousand dollars it's fine this is like investing in me you know like i might lose it but i also might like 10x it you know but at the end of the day if i lose it it's cheaper than like a college class right
0: <laughs> it, exactly i think it was mark cuban that basically said he would recommend, I'll quote this, but I, I, it might be slightly inaccurate, but it was like, Mark Cuban thinks it's better to take the money you would have paid towards college and put it towards starting a business than actually yeah. putting it towards college because you'll learn more with that sum of money if you like actually play around with it. It's also the Tim Ferriss strategy of education. I think Tim Ferriss talks about this a lot too, where he says, take this amount of money and just expect to lose it. Like If you want to get into stock investing, And you want to learn how to invest in the right stocks and day trade, you're better off actually taking a sum of money and expecting to lose it all through action than to like spend $10,000 on courses that teach you about like market analysis or whatever.
1: Yeah, I think Tim Ferriss was like, I think he was considering doing like an MBA at Stanford. And he was like, let me take that money and like instead invest it and like get like mentors. Like, I mean, he has access to like Paul Tudor Jones and all these crazy mentors. But uh, yeah, I love the concept. So what was, um, what was college like for you? I know you started a couple of business. Would love to hear more about like the bigger ventures you did in college, but what was the experience like overall?
0: Honestly, it was more similar to like the common college experience in the sense that like, I still had a ton of fun. I definitely enjoyed myself and went to my fair share of parties and, and social events after my first year of university adopted what I believe is called the barbell approach. By economist named Nassim Taleb, which was basically like, I want to do the bare minimum to pass college and just get a degree. And everything else will be spent on like risky and entrepreneurial endeavors. And instead of like the middle ground, which is like trying to do really well at school. I was like, no, 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 I'm just going to get a degree and I'm going to spend a ton of my time networking and then taking on like risky endeavors and and, uh, cool projects. And so that was my approach. I did very poorly in school, in university. And then uh, I started a tutoring company, which was one of the main projects that I took on that would teach first-year business students like a crash course on one of the classes right before a midterm or an exam. And that was... Something that there was already an organization on campus that was doing, but I realized those classes were like packed to the brim and the tutors were not getting paid for their time. It was all donation-based. So I went to the tutors and I just offered them money to teach a very similar class at a different time and then actually go above and beyond by making like an exercise packet that every student had to go through. And so I charged more for the class, paid my tutors and then brought this class size down. So that it could be a more intimate experience where the participants had a larger amount of one-on-one time with the tutor. And it went well. Like We made cash. I went through my fair share of like the story there really quickly is I ran one class on campus. I booked out a a university classroom to do it. And then the dean of students called me into his office, found out who I was and said, hey, you can't do this on campus. You're charging students to get into a classroom. I was like, yeah, well, this other organization is doing the same thing. And he was like, no, 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 that organization is a nonprofit. They give all their money away. So the money that they're charging at the door is not a payment. It's a donation that the student makes. And that was very surprising because none of the students knew that they were making a donation. They were being asked to pay at the door, but the money was being classified as a donation. The organization, The organization was then giving all the money away. And what the dean of students said to me is, you know, what you should do is you should turn your business into a club. The university will give you like a monthly allocation of capital that you can spend. And then all the money you make will help you find a nonprofit organization to get it to. And I was like, my honest answer to him was like, listen, I really understand where you're coming from. And don't get me wrong. Like I appreciate the work that nonprofits do, but I am broke. I am paying my own way through college. I don't have any money. And I did not sign up for nonprofit school. I signed up for business school. And so I want to know how to run a profitable business. And I can't do that if you just allocate me money every semester, because that's not what the real world is going to treat me like. And so I said, with all due respect, I'm not going to turn this into a nonprofit. I want it to be a for profit business. And he was like, okay, well, then you can't do it on campus. And so I said, see ya. And I left and I went across the street. My university had a church across the street. And I asked the church, like, do you guys have any classrooms in this church that I can access? And they said, yeah, our whole downstairs is filled with classrooms. Like, you can come in and use this. And I said, you know, can I pay you guys? Like, what's the rent? And they said, we're a church, so we can't ask you to pay us, but you can use it for free. And I said, I'll give you guys a percentage of every dollar I make. I tried to you know, think of what was fair. And then they were like, okay, we, we appreciate that. That's above and beyond. And then it was, everyone was happy. They got money for their space that was otherwise empty. And I got to use a facility that was right next door to the university campus.
1: Nice. That's a great story, man. Especially the um, going off campus, just because <laughs> like, it, it's crazy that like in a business school, they, they wouldn't let you like, experiment, right? Like, actually learn business.
0: Yeah. It's, it's the difference, I guess, between business school and why there's no entrepreneurship school. Yeah. And why they fail entrepreneurs, in my opinion, because what they're really teaching you to do in business school is to get a marketing job, a finance job, an accounting job. They're not really teaching you how to like change the system or look for opportunities or gaps in the market in general.
1: Totally, they're training you for those the accounting, like the ABCs, the Accounting, banking, consulting. So, how big do you get this company to, like, revenue-wise?
0: Good question. I would say, like, not nothing, like, crazy big. I would say, like, every semester we were probably doing twenty to thirty thousand dollars. Okay, um, cool.
1: So, I was paying so your rent, was
0: probably. It was paying my rent. Yeah, you know, I paid out tutors. I had some employees. So nothing crazy. I would say probably $20,000 a semester, two semesters a year, probably making $40,000 in revenue in a new year.
1: Nice. Not too bad for a little side hustle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It started becoming very like labor intensive and like uh-huh. time intensive. But yeah, other than that, it was great. Great learning. Nice. So
1: you graduate college and wh- why did you not try to scale this or like, why did you not try to start another business right away?
0: Yeah. So one of the things was the reason I didn't do tutoring was because I always knew tutoring was not something I was like super passionate about in terms of the way that I was running the business in particular. I was just doing it because I could, I knew that it was profitable and I could make money, Mm -hmm. which would help me with like my student loans. And then eventually it became very difficult. Like I started facing challenges and inevitably the business failed. To be honest it failed because i had several instances where the tutors showed up late where they were not educated on the topic that they were teaching and i had people storm out of rooms i had people complain that they want their money back because the tutor was like not doing a great job and after a couple of those of me running around putting out fires and leaving my class to go try to like figure out what the issue was I decided like, okay, this is now at a point where like if I really want to do this, I have to really put my time and emphasis on growing this as a business. And I had initially done it just so that I could learn the skills. I wanted to learn how to hire, I wanted to learn how to create the system. And I felt like I had learned the initial like main part of that learning curve. And so I thought from now on it's actually iterative learning through this like next economies of scale. And I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I kind of shut it down at that point. When I graduated. I graduated with about $60,000 in student loans in total, which I think for like a, a lot of like American students probably isn't a ton, for Canadian students it's, you know, quite average, and I had decided I don't know what my business idea is as an entrepreneur, but I really need to pay off my student loans and it's probably not a great idea to start a business with $60,000 in debt. So I decided to take my my strategy out of university was going to take the highest paying job I can find. And I'm gonna save inordinate amounts of money and put it all towards paying off my loan as fast as possible. So I was, I graduated and started putting away more than fifty percent of every paycheck I got towards my student loan, so that I could pay it off as fast as possible.
1: Did you already have an idea of like, hey, like once I pay off my student loan, I want to start this? Like, did you have like some kind of no? Okay, I saw you took like um, you took some like programming classes in college. Were, were you like in that tech space? Were you like I want to start like a big you mentioned like a Facebook, Apple, I want to start like a big tech company. Is that Was that the
0: plan at the time? or? So, I, I mean, I went to university 2011 to 2015. Um, and so this is around the time that a lot of big tech companies like <clears throat> Airbnb, Uber are starting. Like Uber was something that was introduced in my early years of university. And I grew up or I went to school to university in a town called Waterloo, Ontario in Canada. Uh, Waterloo University, which is across the street from my university, is one of the top engineering and computer science universities in the world. It's one of the largest feeders of engineering talent to Silicon Valley. It's where people like Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, went to school. It's where Chamath Pali Papatia went to school. It's very reputable in the engineering and computer science space. Waterloo, Ontario, funny enough, is where BlackBerry and RIM was founded so in the early days of like you know phones and hardware and software waterloo is the powerhouse of canada in terms of tech talent and so going to school there there was this underlying tech community and ecosystem and so that was kind of always the vibe where people were starting apps people were starting websites people were starting tech related products some of my best friends and one of my closest friends and my roommate throughout university is a computer science engineer through that, I just understood that I knew I didn't want to code, but I knew that I couldn't sound like an idiot when I was talking to computer science engineers. And my friend made that very apparent uh, and still makes that very apparent to me. Is like, you don't want to be the business dude that's like reaching out to an engineer and sounding like you have no idea what you're talking about. And he would get reached out to by uh, Laurier business students, which is where I went to school. And the Laurier business students would hit up the Waterloo engineers and say like, Hey, I have this app idea. We're going to create the Facebook of blank and, and be like, I have $5,000 and I need this to be done in a week. And like all these engineers would shake their heads or tell me these stories and shake their heads that like these stupid business students don't know what they're talking about when it comes to like app development. And I never wanted to be that. So anyway, long story short, I found a computer science course called CS50 through edX which is the introductory computer science course at Harvard, which is offered for free online still to this day. And I decided I'm going to take that and see if I can pass and I'll get the basic understanding of, of computer science so that I can speak to engineers.
1: Nice. Smart. Very smart. Um, cool. Thanks for the, ba- for the background. So you head into this uh, high paying job. What was it?
0: It was a rotational leadership program at a financial and insurance company. So, The company basically offers insurance products to people in canada this is like workplace insurance and life insurance and things of that nature so like not the sexiest type of finance but they offer insurance and like financial instruments and they had a program where they accept 12 students every year to be accelerated into the leadership of their company it's actually a very cool initiative it's basically like we're going to take 12 students and put them in like higher than entry level positions to try to get them to learn. And it's like you do three years in the program and every year you do a different role. And that way you get to see three different sectors of the business. And then eventually when you graduate out of the program, they're hoping that like, you'll be in a leadership position and and they'll accelerate you to that. So I was actually, I applied to that company or to this, you know, program funny story here is i had worked at this company during the summers during my internships so they knew who i was i was familiar with the company i ended up not getting into the program and they offered me a like a regular job out of university like an entry-level job and i turned it down and i said no i don't want to take the regular job i wanted to be in the program and you know they were like you know we'll just at least go see what jobs we have to offer like graduating out of university, not every student is lucky enough to get a job offer before they graduate. So they were like, you should at least like see what we have to offer. And I was like, no, if I'm not one of those 12, I don't want to work here. I would love to like get on follow-up calls with you guys to learn what I could have done better in the application process and the interview process, but I'm not going to work here because I can't show up to this office every day and look at those 12 people that made it and feel happy because I know that I deserve to be there. And they ended up actually turning around and saying, we want to open up a 13th spot for you because we've never had anyone say that to us before. And uh, they opened up a 13th spot for me. And I think that was also like a huge lesson in recognizing my own value and the power of what happens when you know your worth. Because I remember a lot of students at of university, I'm sure this is relevant for anyone trying to or like about to graduate college. It feels like, oh my God, can I find a company that wants me? Can I find a company that's actually willing to pay me $60,000 a year, $80,000 a year? Like, please. And you don't want to like be in a situation where you're like working at the mall or at a restaurant as a waiter, like you want something in your field. And I think everyone should adopt the mindset of these companies need you more than you need them. Finding good fresh grad talent or like employees is really difficult. So if like you can have confidence in yourself and your ability and you know your work ethic and you know your knowledge, these companies need you more than you need them. And so I think it was that mindset that helped me there. So I joined that I joined that program as the 13th spot and I hated it. I fucking hated it. I thought it was I thought it was terrible. The company was bureaucratic, it was slow moving. I was trying to take on these entrepreneurial projects within the business to like launch a new tool or do a new thing. And it was like shut down every time. This is like in two months, but I was like ready to hit the ground running. Um. Anyway, long story short, I quit after two months.
1: What like what was your mind space? Like when you were there? We're you, like, I'm going to grind us through. Did you feel stuck at all at any time? Or were you like, as soon as I finished, like paying my loans, I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave here. I heard you mention, uh in another interview, I think something that a lot of people can relate to of like, When you're in a position like that, and like you want to work on a side hustle on the side, you just, you come home and you just feel drained, right? And so I want you to address that for anyone that's listening that that is in one of those positions, you know, it just like feels like they don't have the energy to work in a side hustle, you know, because they're just like emotionally drained from their work. Like what, like do you recommend they just quit? I feel like a lot of times people are like, oh, start a side hustle on the side. But it's like, if you're really in that position, I think it's hard a lot of times.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So my experience with this was I told myself, I'm going to do this job. Uh, I'm going to be there from nine to five or eight to four. I'm going to get home. I'm going to eat. And then I'm going to work from six o'clock to 11 o'clock every night on my side hustle. And at the time, my side hustle was this blog that I was running with a few friends called the well-balanced man, which I wanted to run into this, like grow into this media company that was for men who wanted to balance themselves between sports, fashion, business, and music as their like four interests. And so I was working on that. And you're exactly right. I would come home and many days I would be exhausted. And I had no motivation left. I had no bandwidth left. And many nights I realized, or I found myself like putting it off watching TV and not having the energy because I had been drained all day from this like soul sucking data entry job. And I recommend for anyone in that situation, like the thing that I want, I recognize I needed to do. And this came from, I looked at a few of my friends that wanted to be entrepreneurs that I thought were beating me. And they were beating me because they were at jobs that were teaching them skills or they were like doing it, you know what I mean? Like going forward and starting something. And being the competitive person that I was, I was like, oh my God, I'm like trading eight of my hours in my day for a check. I'm not getting anything else, just this check. I'm not meeting cool people. I'm not learning cool skills. There's nothing else. There's no other benefits. And then I come home and I'm drained and I can't even work on my project. And even if I could work on my project, I have like four hours to work on my project. So what I realized was the money, the check is not valuable. It's not the most important thing to optimize for. I was wrong. The most important thing I could optimize for was skills that I could develop. And so what I decided was I do not care about the size of this check. All I need to do is live. What I need to optimize for is that the skills that I'm developing. So I decided I'm going to quit. I'm going to go find a job that optimizes for the most important skill that an entrepreneur should have. And I thought that that was sales. I thought that an entrepreneur needs to have incredible sales skills. And so I want to go somewhere that will teach me those skills, whether it pays me like $20,000 a year or whether it pays me $50,000 a year um, or $100,000 a year. Like I didn't care. I just was like optimized for that. And as soon as I made that decision, which was literally in a day where I had this aha moment, I went to an entrepreneurship event the next day, literally the next day. And I ran into a company called Shopify and they had a booth at this event. No one knew who they were That's and crazy. <laughs> they, they were hiring, they were hiring salespeople. And it kind of very serendipitously like panned out that way. Two weeks later, I was working at Shopify, I had quit and then I was doing sales.
1: Did you have any idea when you ran into them that day or I guess when you accepted the job once doing a little research that that they were kind of like on this rocket ship trajectory
0: very small indication this the roommate that I had who is this computer science engineer his name's Victor when I told him I came home he was my roommate at the time and I was like hey like I found this company called Shopify they have sales roles he's like dude Shopify is crushing like they're like really becoming this like cool canadian company And I was like, Oh, what do they do? And he kind of explained to me a little bit. I didn't fully grasp the magnitude of what was happening or how quickly it was growing, but he was like, that's a really cool company. And like, I've heard people talk about it. Take that opportunity seriously. So that was like the only real indication I had. Like when I told my mom, Hey, mom, I'm going to quit this sun life financial for Shopify. She was like, what's Shopify? When I told my boss at sun life. Uh, financial that I was leaving for a startup, she was like, what's the startup? And I was like, Shopify. And she's like, you know, most startups don't last (laughs) very long. So like that can be a very risky endeavor. I mean, I'm very lucky. Like I don't consider it any knowledge of my own. It was a a completely luck that I ended up landing on the the largest and fastest growing Canadian company of all time is now the the highest market cap of any Canadian company in human history. That's That's why.
1: I was just looking at the numbers before. So it seems you joined around 2015 and uh, they're bringing around $200 million in revenue. Today, they're real—they're bringing in $3 billion in revenue, which is <laughs> freaking. And you, you joined like right before they, they went public, it looks like, right?
0: It was like right around the month that they went public, I joined. Yeah. Um, so it was like, it was wild. I think I was employee number 500 and something. And I believe now their public number of how many employees they have is like, I want to say 10,000 plus. And so it was like, I joined and then I was like, wait a second, every week there's like 50 people being (laughs) added to this office. Like, this is crazy. And there were, you know, when I was working at the finance company, I was there for two months and there were people there that were there for three years. And they were like, people were talking about them as if they were junior. Uh, and that if they, they had still so much to learn, blah, 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 blah. Because there's people who spend 25 years of their life at these companies. Yeah. Uh, when I was at Shopify, after three months, I had mentees that I was like uh, helping get up to speed and I was teaching things to, and I had all this responsibility given to me because we were growing so fast that like, I was, I was like considered a senior person after like six months in the company. It was like wild. That's wild. Um, so even just that difference in culture and that difference in speed of company was so much more beneficial to be part of.
1: How? um, Okay, so what what were you doing exactly for them?
0: So I started in what was called Shopify Plus, which is the enterprise version of Shopify, where they were bringing on merchants or stores, brands, that were doing over a million dollars in yearly revenue. And I was getting them to leave whatever e-commerce platform that they were using to join Shopify. Gotcha. So that's how the role started, yeah.
1: And is that how, like the main role you
0: had throughout or did it evolve or? It evolved because I was predominantly in, or like wanted to specialize in outbound sales. The difference between outbound and inbound sales for people who aren't familiar with sales is like inbound sales is you get a lead. People sign up at shopify.com saying like, Hey, I want to learn more. And then you call them and it's a warm lead. They already have expressed interest in working with you. An outbound sale is like you call someone cold and you say, Hey, my name is Zach. I work at Shopify. Like you guys use Magento, which is a competitor. Why don't you consider switching over? I really like outbound sales because it's a lot harder and I wanted to develop the skills. So uh, where the role progressed was I came up with a philosophy of the businesses that can use Shopify the most are streetwear brands because streetwear brands are run by like a small team of people who love fashion love culture but have no technical experience they do not know how to code they don't know how to develop websites which is the main value that shopify offers it allows you to build a website and manage an e-commerce store without knowing any development knowledge and, and insight so i realized there's this beautiful gap in the market or this part in the market where our product provides a tremendous amount of value. And then I personally love streetwear. I know so much about the streetwear space. I know everything about sneakers and culture. So I can speak these people's languages. So I realized I'm going to focus on this category in the market. And so I started working with streetwear brands and signing streetwear brands onto Shopify, helping them run really cool marketing activations and helping them like see the value in the platform and I started flying to the USA to meet with these brands in order to sign them onto Shopify. So my role became very like travel based. And it also became like predominantly focused on the streetwear niche. And so that's kind of where I started to learn uh, from these streetwear owners about where they got their clothes made, how they ran the stores, how their relationships with Nike and Adidas worked on and buying and reselling shoes. And that was where I started to gather the knowledge of like e-commerce as a merchant. It seems like you carved that niche out
1: for yourself there, right? Like that's the yeah, cool thing about right. these like these big like fast growing companies moving so fast and like they're looking for owners, right? And so you're able to be like, hey, like I see an opportunity. This is aligned with like what I'm interested in and just like go for it, right?
0: Yeah, I mean Shopify, I can't say enough good things about Shopify, especially the culture at that time. It was like move fast, break things type of like energy very entrepreneurial, very much like be an owner, do things, ask forgiveness, don't ask permission. And so there was like, even a time after I had done this for like four months, I was just like telling management, like, I want to be head of streetwear. I want to like, be able to call someone and say like, I'm head of streetwear at Shopify plus. And no one really was like, don't do that. So I was like calling places being like, I'm head of streetwear. I would show up at conventions and be like, I'm head of streetwear. And <laughs> no one ever told me not to do it. So I kept doing it. And it kind of just became like people would then within the company would introduce me to like streetwear brands that they met as head of streetwear. And (laughs) whether whether that was like the right thing or whether they'll be like, that was great or not, it worked. And it gave me this authority because I just was able to like make my own title almost. Yeah, that's awesome. Fake it till you make it, right? (laughs) Um, Fake it till you make it, indeed.
1: So while you were there, like, did you still have in the back of your mind, like, oh, I'm going to, I'm guessing by now you've paid off your student loans, right? That you still have in the back of my, of your mind, like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to start a company soon. Like, was it like, oh, like I'm building the skills. I feel like I've reached a cap, you know, like when did that kind of like start a popping in your mind again?
0: Yeah. So one thing is I told the director in my interview, this will be the last job I ever have. I'm only working here so that I can develop sales. I am deadly focused on being the best salesperson in the world. And as soon as I achieve that, I will leave and I will go do my own business. So this will be the last company I ever work for. And I said that in my interview and the the director was like, yeah, that's amazing. We only want people to like, if you want to come in here and be the best salesperson in the world, like, yeah, you're able to do that. Hell yeah. We're all happy. And, And so I was able to be honest and like really express what I want out of the thing. I think it comes back to that same mindset of like these companies need you more than you need them. And so I was able to express, here's what I want to get out of it. And here's what value I'm, I'm offering. And they were like, cool, here's what we want out of it. And we'll, we'll pay you. <laughs> um, and uh, so I said that in my interview is always something in the back of my mind. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And everyone in the company knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur at Shopify, we had an internal Slack where you can make your own Slack handle. My Slack handle at Shopify, which is the most, arguably the most entrepreneurial company in the world, was at Entrepreneur uh, because <laughs> I, awesome. I didn't want I didn't want to let it escape my mind that that's what I wanted to do. That's I awesome, never man. wanted to I never wanted to forget.
1: It's like hundred reminders every day that that's what you want to do, right? You just get that that handle.
0: And yeah. said, um, Amar from yesterday would call it like throwing your back over the fence, where it's like when you've told the world and you've told the entire company that you want to quit because you want to be an entrepreneur, now your freaking reputation and your word is on the line. So now you have no choice but to go after it because you just told everyone and they see it on your Slack handle. So you better not chicken out and not go after it. So yeah. that was kind of like the mindset. After a few, so I while I was at Shopify. This is around the time I met the Yes Theory team. I helped them launch Seek This Comfort. We co-founded a merchandising business together called Fan of a Fan to help other creators launch merchandise. This is all while I'm still working at Shopify. I'm traveling to LA.
1: Did you meet them through through really like Shopify calls? Like were they? How how did you meet them? Was it just friends?
0: I was or? in I, w- I was in LA for Shopify work, and uh, a mutual friend connected us. Uh, the same friend, ironically, who's this Waterloo computer science engineer roommate that I had, uh, had had introduced us. And I met up for lunch with them one day when I was in L.A. and we instantly became really good friends. I admired what they were doing and I really resonated with the philosophy and they really were interested in the job that I had at Shopify and uh, were fascinated by the the things that I was helping Shopify do. And so we just became really good friends and then they needed help with merchandise and I was the friend who worked in streetwear. So they were like, Zach should help us. And obviously like the missing puzzle piece fit so well with them wanting seek discomfort to be a streetwear brand. And so that was how the connection initially started. And that's before you started managing them, right? That was
1: just like a side project of like, Hey, let's, let's help these guys like start some merch. What, what about fan of a fan? What was the vision behind that?
0: Vision I was surprised
1: to find out that you started that before you started managing them and, and you, uh, all of the other like management stuff. So,
0: yeah, yeah. So that was the first thing is basically I helped yesterday, launch their merch, which was seek discomfort. And then they kept coming to me with other creators that they knew and said like, so and so wants merch, and so-and-so wants merch. And uh, one day at at their house, we were just like, why don't we just start a merchandising company and we'll be co-founders and we'll just do this merchandising company, I'll do everyone's merchandise and then like, we'll run it under this company. And so Yes Theory will be like a co-owner so that they're not just launching one brand, but they're helping other creators launch their brands, which is a much better business. And uh, that's how the thought started. And we eventually brought in a third partner who is now the CEO who runs it um, and continues to run it and grow it. And uh, that was the thought process initially was, can we help other creators launch their merch? And so management was never even a thought. No one had ever thought of like, I should become a manager. Yes Theory at the time was like still probably a year away from like really thinking about bringing on a manager. And I think even while I was helping them with Fan of a Fan and with their merch, they had even like hired some managers that didn't pan out. And so I was just their friend that they would come be like, yo, this manager's like, we don't like this about them. We don't like that about them. And I was like, sure. Cool. Yeah, whatever. Like, it never popped into my mind to manage them. I think one day, Amar said it as a joke and was like, yo, you should manage us. It came around the time I decided I wanted to move to Los Angeles. And I told Shopify, I want to move to Los Angeles. And I was supposed to move to Los Angeles with Shopify under a Shopify role. And then I think Amar said, like, you should manage us on the side when you move here. Like, everyone was so excited. They were like, you know, we're going to live beside each other. Zach's going to come to LA. And they were like, you should manage us on the side. And uh, through a whole, like, entrepreneurial moment of truth, I was like, what am I waiting for? I have always said I wanted an opportunity to do and start my own business. Um, I'm about to move to another country across the continent to like open up another office for this Shopify company that does not need my help. They're fine. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm not going to have the level of impact I want to have. So anyway, I, I decided to bite the bullet and I told the Yes Theory guys, if I do this, I don't want to do it on the side. I'll do it full time. And so that was it. I, I moved. I lived in the back shack at 506 Westminster, which is where they uh, had their house and office. And I decided that management would be the thing that I would do, largely because I thought they had something really special and have something really special that I could help with. And I they didn't have like a business person on the team. And so I felt like I fit really well.
1: I mean, they were, they were pretty small at the time, probably, right?
0: Like half a million or something like that, subscribers? I remember when the moment I was like, I'll take this role was like 400,000 subscribers.
1: Gotcha. And so like, I mean, management and in you in, uh, in the creator space wasn't really like a thing really right it's like there was probably like brand brand deal agencies you know and that that stops at that so like what was your vision at the time of like did you already have a vision of like was this just like this is going to be like a small business were you like oh this is going to be like massive you know like what was the vision
0: initially my interest came from uh music management i thought music management was really interesting and i thought maybe i can use this to get into music management I looked up to people like Scooter Braun and Jerry Weintraub and people like that. So that's what initially caught my attention or my interest. I didn't watch a ton of YouTube. I wasn't like overly passionate about YouTube. And then initially I didn't really even think of myself as like, I'm going to build the best management company in the world. What I thought was, oh my God, yes theory can become like Oprah that was the example that I had in my mind. Like, oh my God, yes theory can be and stand for what Oprah stands for. And what Oprah stands for is a source of trust and knowledge and information for middle-aged women, right? Is like the target demographic. I think yes theory can stand for, for like young males predominantly, especially like fresh college graduates or college dropouts or high school graduates. And I had like a thought process in my mind of like, oh, this brand can grow, it can stand as a philosophy, as an ideology. I think the guys shared that perspective and they recognized that it wasn't about them. It was about the larger philosophy. And so that was the initial like, oh my God, yes theory can be a huge thing. And that was what was like the real motivation. I will my goal and what I would walk around telling everyone was I want yes theory to be a household name. I want to help make yes theory a household name. So that was my North star with management. It was never about like my management company or turning my management company into the Scooter Braun projects of the creator space. Um, it was more about yes theory and yes theory being the biggest.
1: Gotcha. Like when you were starting out, like you said, you, you you had no, like at first you had no desire to be a manager. Right. And like, you really didn't have much knowledge of the industry. How, How do you figure it out?
0: Yeah, it was tough. Um, I think taking a lot of meetings, asking a lot of questions, trying to find mentors. The good thing about the thing that I was, again, i probably lucky with was there were no creator managers. There's no one I could go ask, Hey, how do you do this? And like, how did you do this? So well, you know, there, there just weren't that many and of the ones that there were, I wasn't connected to any of them. So the good thing was that it was the wild, wild west. And it like being entrepreneurial in the space was a huge advantage because where there are no roads, you have to make roads. And I loved the idea of making a road where there was no road. It wasn't very scary to me. It was like, oh my God, there's endless opportunities in the music industry. And the reason I never went into the music industry, inevitably, even though I always thought it was where I was going to go was because there's so many paved roads. Everything has already been tried for the most part. Or like there's there's a gazillion music managers who have done a, a gazillion different marketing tactics and, and business strategies, et cetera, et cetera. And there are a few ways that are very traditional. You're an artist, you sign to a record label, you put your music on distribution platforms, you sell merch, and you tour. That's what you do for the large part, right? Very few artists innovate beyond that model because it's just what you're supposed to do. With creators, there was no what you're supposed to do. What you're supposed to do hadn't been done. You know, creators did not have the same traditional standards and pressure put on them. It was like, oh, you want to do a talk show? Okay, Logan Paul, do a talk show. Oh, you want to start like a coffee company? Okay, Emma Chamberlain, that's not weird. Start a coffee company. Whereas if you talk to a lot of musicians, if you talk to like Doja Cat and you were like, start a coffee company, Doja Cat might be like, what the hell am I going to start a coffee company for? Like, that's not what artists do. Only because of creators are artists starting to act like creators and innovate on the things that they're doing. I think it's largely influenced by what's happening in digital and in the creator economy because artists are realizing everyone's just fighting for attention. There's not a lot of differences between them and creators. So anyway, that's, that's I think how I was able to view the space is I understand consumer behavior and I like starting businesses and thinking of innovative ways to make money. So How can I analyze the consumer behavior of the target demographic of Yes Theory and then think of really exciting and fun businesses that we can start to cater to their needs and add value to that community? And that just came from trial and error and asking questions and not being afraid to put the first step into motion.
1: So what were the the first projects you worked on? Like you're starting from scratch, right? You're like, I'm pretty much inventing the space here. Like, where were the first, like, I guess, the easy things
0: to grab? Seek Discomfort was the first big project. And I would say what, what felt revolutionary at the time was doing a drop model or like a pre-sale model on merchandise. Like, really quick education on merchandise is like, creators usually buy the garment that they're selling blank from a supplier. Then they send that garment to a print shop. And the print shop embroiders a design on it. So like, you know, this hoodie would be like the embroidery Adidas on it, or obviously the creator logo that ends up getting sent to a fulfillment center. And whenever that item is bought, the fulfillment center takes it off the shelf, puts it in a bag and ships it to the customer. And creators have to decide how many of these shirts in advance they want to buy and hold that at the warehouse. Now it, requires you to know how many you're going to sell for a creator. It's very hard to gauge demand. So a lot of creatives were either lack of inventory and they sold out of everything way too fast, or they would over order inventory. Like they would order a thousand t-shirts and then sell a hundred of them. And then 900 t-shirts are sitting on the shelf collecting dust. And so the first like real, I think, innovation that we brought within the space to some degree, like it wasn't like totally, in uh, but no, not a lot of people were doing it in 2017 was like, we held no inventory. We created like five units, did a photo shoot, put it in the video. The guys would wear it, but we had no inventory in a warehouse. We would do a sale that lasted for 72 hours or 48 hours. We would collect orders, but the inventory didn't exist. After 72 hours, we would shut the site down and then we would see how many orders we sold. And then we would do a really quick turnaround, go order all these things that sold in the exact sizes that they sold and then send those to the print shop, get them printed and then ship them to the customer, which required the customer to wait a little bit longer to get their order. But it allowed us to only make what we sold and therefore not hold any extra inventory or waste any inventory. And our competitive advantage was we could do that really quickly. Uh, We had the right relationships with the right print shops and fulfillment centers where we could do that faster than most creators. And uh, fan of a fan has grown into, you know, a, a much larger business today, because we've continued on that thought process. We now own our own warehouse. We now own our own printing facility and we own our own fulfillment center. So that process has just gone faster and faster and faster and faster to the point now where like we can do a drop that makes millions of dollars in revenue and have it all produced, uh, embroidered or screen printed, and then fulfilled in like two weeks. Whereas if you go look at most artists, like actually big, like musical artists that do merch, like there's six week turnaround. So that, that's the model that was like the first project and in innovation.
1: The, I mean, the other thing that's genius about that is the scarcity aspect, right? Cause a lot of times, like the merch is just sitting around, it's like, oh, I can buy it in a couple of weeks and you end up never buying it here. It's like, holy shit, this, this hoodie is so sick. Like this design is only available for the next 20, like 72 hours. Like I need to get it. And so I'm guessing like that, that must bump up the sales like crazy.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it was also uh, because we understood that the attention was coming from people watching a YouTube video. So when a YouTube video went out, it would collect most of its views like in the first few days. Therefore, we knew most core fans are watching a video within the first 24 hours that it's posted because Yes Theory is posting weekly content. And so we also knew that part of it, which was like, if the video goes up, and it promotes this drop, and the site is live, then that's great. And like, we can capitalize on most of the attention right there.
1: Gotcha. I'm curious, as you take on uh, management, how are you getting compensated? What does that look like? As far as like, you guys are, and you're putting in all this work? Like, are you salaried? Are you like, are you guys revenue sharing? Are you like an owner in like Yes Theory or the business or like the business part of Yes Theory? Like, what, what does that look like?
0: yeah so my structure was always like commission based and commission is largely like percentage of revenue or percentage of profit depending on the business um so the typical manager commission somewhere between ten to twenty percent um sometimes that varies between customer or client and uh, manager relationship or sometimes it varies depending on the revenue stream like there's some managers that don't even know anything about Merch. And so they commission Merch less because they don't even like really handle it. It's like outsourced to another company. And then there's some managers that are like partners and equity owners in the Merch company that they work on with their creators. So there's not really one size fits all. My particular relationship was more based on commissions and revenue shares. And so that was the the model that I took, but I didn't, again, it was like, I didn't know anything about management. So I just did what I knew. Which was like based on very lack of information and lack of yeah, lack of like knowing what the best way forward was, and I think I've learned a bit about that over the past like you know three, four years of doing it now of like more innovative models, and then also now it took me a while to even think about like what about my management company? you know, like I said, I had always thought about, yes, there is a North Star, making yes theory the biggest name in the world is the North Star, and that had largely meant I had never thought about. What about one day entertainment? What about expanding my management company? What about me? Um, And so that took me a while to learn. Those were all lessons that I think I I gained along the way.
1: At what point did you start to think of taking on more creators and building your own management company?
0: When I hired my first like employee or teammate, Kate, who's like my right hand now and my co-founder and creator now, I think she was the first person to like really challenge me on like, what about one day? like this is great and you have a lot of great like awareness and focus on Yes Theory but like don't forget about one day what about one day and i think that was like a really great propeller for me to start thinking more there and then in 2020 when the year started i was like okay this year i'm going to sign some more people it had been like two years of me being like an exclusive manager of Yes Theory and i decided like i'm going to try to sign an artist maybe some tiktok creators I was really actually focused on TikTok creators because 2020 I was like, TikTok's going to boom. And uh, I was learning a ton about the TikTok space. It was through looking for TikTokers that I found Iraq, who's not a freaking TikToker at all. And also the Cheeky Boyos who are TikTokers. So that was, that was where that strategy came in, um, in terms of like trying to expand. And then I guess really quickly, I guess for anyone that finds this interesting, like, In my mind, it was if you want to run a management company, you can either expand your roster to include tons of clients and you can have revenue share commission models with them, but your eggs are not all in one basket. Or you can have a smaller roster of creators that you work with, but you have to partner with them on businesses because the main drawback of a manager is that you are not an owner usually, unless you like really make yourself an owner in the businesses that you're starting or working on, it's not common for like a manager to own equity in the business uh, or in the creator. And so what ends up happening to a lot of managers uh, is that like eventually managers are taken out of the picture or their commissions are, are decreased, or eventually the creator just doesn't want to make art or music anymore. Uh, or videos and then it's like oh shit my revenue stream just disappeared Mm -hmm. and so it's very risky you spend your time building a business that you don't own and that at any point you can be like snap and kicked out of Mm -hmm. and so i started realizing these things and realizing the need for diversity and i didn't want to go the path of managing like 10 to 50 creators and not being able to have the intimate relationship that i had with like yes theory So I decided I'm just going to manage a small group of rosters, but I have to partner with them and co-own businesses with them or else the model won't work because there's too much risk of getting kicked out um, or comp changing or the creator stopping or whatever. And so that was, I think, the big learning adjustment. And then I expanded with Cheeky Boyos, ARAC, and then Yes Theory.
1: That's really interesting. That was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you because like looking at a different uh, management company, like Night Media, they've kind of from what my understanding, like Reed Ducher, he he focuses on he like has like two or three clients similar to you, but then he's hired other managers who basically do that for themselves within the ecosystem of Night Media, right? Like, is that something you're interested in long term, as far as like scaling with other basically owners within your company who are who are managing like like a small number of artists, or is it way prefer focusing on just like two three businesses and just like like not having any distraction as far as like, hey, like I have all this team to manage and stuff.
0: Yeah, I think Knight is like doing it the best in the space in terms of like building creator management. I have a ton of respect and love for for Reed, Ezra, and the entire team there. And they're good friends. I knew I didn't want to do that. Um, if I can think of why, it was basically just because they were like setting out to be like, we're going to build the SB projects, like the Scooter Braun projects of creators. And I think, I think like Reed is, you know, the closest to like the Scooter Braun of the creator space. He like manages the biggest creator on the face of the planet and is building out like an actual management company. I didn't want to do that because I never thought of myself as wanting to be a manager forever. I wanted to be able to build beyond that and become more of like a founder and have something else. The other thing that was very hard for me is like I managed very intimately. And I mean that by like, I wanted to have a deep relationship with my clients. And it was so hard to do that with like three clients because my time is so spread out. I had no idea what I would do if that was like 10 and some, and like night is still like boutique. Like there's some management companies that have like 50 people that they represent. It's like, you don't even pick up the phone if they call. That's like when people are like WME or CAA is like management. When you have an agent, it's like those agents are like, they have like a thousand clients. Like they don't even know your name. I want to like know my creators, the details of their life. I want to know their motivations. I want to know what they think about. It. I want to know their fears, their anxieties, like their life struggles. I tell all my like the creators that I work with, like my goal is so that you guys are like 30 years old and, and happy and like optimized for happiness. I hope that like one day I'm at your guys' like wedding and, and I'm able to like witness you guys as like parents and adults and like, you know, like I want to be able to see that progression. I can't do that for 10 people. So anyway, for me, I think I've found fulfillment and i found passion and like picking particular people and having large amounts of impact in their lives rather than have, picking, you know, a wider net of people and having more shallow levels of impact in their lives. Where now things have progressed are is like, hey, now I found a business that I was able to co-found with a creator, being creator now, and have that become something that is like, wow, this business is actually, this is really exciting. And this is like a very interesting iteration on management. And maybe creator now can actually become the thing that I become the real entrepreneur around because management is like very much owning it. You, you don't own a business, you own a job. If I took myself out of one day entertainment to a large degree, one day entertainment doesn't exist. It's not something I can fully ever remove myself from. Uh, And I think the real strongest entrepreneurs build a business that can exist without them. It's a system. It's a process. It's an infrastructure. Uh, so I've always wanted to do that. And I think creator now is like, now this interesting opportunity in front of me to finally do that. That's
1: awesome, man. Yeah. It seems like the manager role was like the vehicle towards like that long, like entrepreneurial kind of like ambition that you've had. Right. Where it's like, it's kind of like a step up where it's like not fully, like you're saying, like you're still in the machine. Right. But it's like the vehicle mm-hmm. where it's like, now you're able to go deep. You, you have these, these big brands essentially. Right which you can create businesses together in collaboration with. So I want to dive a little deeper into the different projects you've been working on, uh, working on both with Yes Theory and ARAC as well. Cheeky Boys, I'm not super familiar with yet, but um if there's any one that sticks out, happy to talk about that too. Okay. So we covered Seek Discomfort. A couple of the other projects that are really interesting. You guys put together like two documentaries, which is which is crazy. I mean, that's like a full-time business of itself, right? Like putting out like a documentary and you guys, you guys turned it over super fast. I want to talk about the podcast, which is like one of the latest endeavors you, you guys have been doing. And then I want to talk about just like your involvement with the content, if at all, and the community building and like what your involvement is with that. So maybe actually let's start with a community building, because uh, I know like from the inception, like you saw their brand and you were like, Hey, this is bigger than just a YouTube channel. Like this is a movement, right? And so I want to talk about how do you strategize from there and what was your involvement with building? Like you guys built like a community, like through Facebook groups, like the texting community. And it's like, there's a reason why Yes Theory gets a million views at least per video, like every single time versus a lot of other creators will be like hit or miss, you know, you get like a million views, but then you'll get like 200K on like the next video, you know?
0: I mean, I think I give most kudos to those guys for being able to like really tell meaningful stories around the philosophy. I think beyond that, that's the hardest part in building a community is like providing stories that are emotionally captivating to a group of people that return every time because the story is just so like, uh, they find identity and meaning and purpose in it. What I think I was able to do was I was able to like find tools early that we could use to strengthen the community and provide them with tools that they could use to facilitate connection and can facilitate communication directly between us and them. So, I think like one of those was like, you know, early on, we were like, let's start a Facebook group. We thought nothing of it. When, like, I started a Facebook group, and I think I looked two months later, and there were 50,000 people in it, and people were like self organizing things. And we were like, oh my God, let's put more resources in here and start doing things and hire moderators and just manage this entire system better and build subgroups for continents and countries and cities and all that. So that was like a lot of the role there with community, the SMS platform that we use. That was another thing where it was like a friend told me about the service. I had always been extremely bullish on SMS marketing and SMS communication between celebrity creator and audience. And so that was like one of the things I I just brought to the attention of the guys and they were like, yeah, this is great, like let's use it. And then creating, helping them create like a strategy. What kind of things do we send to this list? Like how do we promote this list? How do we get more people to text us all these different things? So that was like a lot more of on the community side that those were the things that I would help with like the facilitation and the actual like creating of the things that the community used. And then down the road, that was also like, when yesterday did yesterday runs the world, which was like the big group community involvement. I think like my voice in the room, I always tried to make around strengthening the community. It's actually very like, I think pretty counter to a manager. <laughs> a lot of managers like more views and like maximize views and my, or like maximize subscribers and get to a hundred million subscribers. And I was always under the notion of like, Hey guys, we have a million subscribers. How do we just make sure that every of those million subscribers that we have, we create more core fans out of them? You know, when yesterday we had a million subscribers, I think they probably had like 200,000 people that would watch every video no matter what. They would listen to the the guys. And if they promoted something, they would, uh, you know, think about buying merch if merch was offered. The community was still smaller than obviously the total subscriber count. And so my thought process was always, Hey guys, we can create videos that turn the 1 million subscriber number into 10 million, but why don't we also create videos that turn the $200,000 co- or 200,000 core fans into 400,000 core fans. Even if the 1 million doesn't change, we would call them Stan fans or like mom fans. Cause they love you as much as like a mom loves. Someone. Yeah. So that was, I think the other involvement I had, I think I was, I always tried to be a voice in the room of like, Hey, this video is like really viral. But where is like the emotional substance in it that makes someone like a diehard fan?
1: What's the difference and, between... Can you give an example of like a type of video that turns like a fan into a super fan?
0: Yeah, 100%. So uh, there's a video in the s yes channel around like helping a 88-year-old grandma ski for her last time. She was a skier when she was growing up. She's 88 years old. You know, she's not very super healthy and so she wants to ski one more time before she dies. And the guys go to Aspen and they help her ski for the last time. It's an incredibly emotional video about, you know, life and the finite time that we have on this planet. And it's a very captivating and emotionally enthralling video. It does not get a ton of views, nor is it one of the most viewed videos on that channel. But I think most times when Yes Theory asks fans like what their favorite video is, that video comes up quite a bit. And then there's like other videos like the Justin Bieber burrito video or like the Will Smith jump video. Those videos appeal to a mass audience. If someone doesn't know who Yes Theory is, they will probably hear about Yes Theory through one of those videos because it was like able to break the boundaries of the, the core audience. So the, those videos are really good for pulling in new subscribers. The grandma video is really good for turning subscribers into core diehard fans. Yeah,
1: and you have to balance um, because both, right?
0: there exactly you have to balance both i think yes one of the things yesterday's done really well and again kudos to the guys it's also and i'm not the only voice in that room that thinks these ways and i was just another voice in the room that thought these ways they've done a really good job balancing that out nice
1: yeah it's hard to do especially like when your grow when your goal is growth you know and you just like what you have seen subscriber number go up it's like it's addicting right and like it's like your inclination is like oh i just grow the number grow the number but like Doing that plus, I guess like slowing down in order to build like a stronger audience is like not always easy to do, so definitely kudos to them. So let's talk about the um, I want to talk about the documentary. Like, what's the discussion in a room going on when you're like, "Hey, guys, we're going to do a documentary." What are all the decisions
0: and questions that need to be asked? The Iceman documentary was the first one, and it didn't start out by being a documentary. Like we didn't think we were going to go film with Wim Hof and that it was going to turn into a documentary. We thought it was just going to be any old YouTube video. Now, obviously the production of that was quite large and we brought out videographers with us like Matt Como and Andreas Hemp were like two of the top videographer filmmakers in the world. But we were only thinking that it was a YouTube video. So I wish there was no foresight into like this is a documentary. Funny enough, when we were in Poland, Wim Hof kept calling it a documentary. He's like, the documentary you guys are making is going to be blah blah. And we had- kept telling Wim like Wim, it's not a documentary. Like it's just a YouTube video. And he was like, no, no, the documentary is just interesting, Wim. And lo and behold, when the whole experience finished, which was obviously like a crazy experience given everything we went through. The team was like, we have so much footage here that this can turn into a documentary. And that was when it was like, okay, what would that look like? And should we explore this? What I tried to do is I tried to get a, a hold of YouTube to see if YouTube wanted to make it a YouTube original. The way that things move with creators is they want to move like this. And so the timelines didn't work. YouTube moves a lot slower on approving budgets and YouTube originals. So it didn't work out with YouTube originals. And the team was like, okay, let's just put this out. So aside from that, that was like really my, I helped logistically and a little bit like that, but there was like the real lift was on the team to tell that story in a new way that had never been told before. Like Thomas and Amar and the team have never built an hour long story. And so they pulled in Colin and Samir who were helpful there and like a bunch of different editors and color graders and, sound engineers whatever to be able to like make that as premium as it was i was more involved in the second one because when we did the first one and it was so successful i think now it has like 15 million views we wanted to sell the next one we wanted to make money off of it because although the wim hof documentary did really well from a marketing perspective like it got a ton of views it didn't make us any money yeah i think we probably lost money on on that documentary Um, and so the next one we wanted to sell it to youtube originals or to find some sort of fu- funding for it and it didn't end up working out with YouTube originals. They didn't want to distribute it. And so very like entrepreneurial, we were like, well, how do we do this? And one of the things I think I was inspired by like the Nipsey hustle model of selling music and like marketing music was what if we do something that's like pay what's fair, because we don't want to charge our audience like $10 to watch this and, and stream it because, We have fans that are in countries like all over the world, right? And not everyone has a disposable income. If someone's in the Philippines or in Egypt or in Thailand or in whatever, and they don't have 10 US dollars to watch a documentary, we don't want them to miss out on the opportunity. So we said, okay, why don't we just make a platform that someone can pay anything, but they have to pay and they can pay a dollar or they can pay $10 or they can pay $100. It's up to them. And we thought that's a very interesting thing and no one's ever done it before. And so that's also like part of the whole trailblazing, groundbreaking things. is like, let's try this and see if it works. So then Kate and I became responsible for like building the platform. How do we find a platform that actually does this from a technical perspective? That was how I was was involved there. It was like, okay, let's make money from it this way. And then let me actually go build the platform and facilitate it, development of it so I can do this.
1: Interesting. Are you involved with like, with, like, hiring at all at Yes Theory?
0: More so in the past. Like, I think, like, more in the logistics process of it around, like... I mean, most of the hires were always around editors. So I would be more, like, on the contract negotiation and processing payrolls and things like that. Um, I don't know what it takes to be a good editor, so I would let Thomas and Tommy uh, handle that more. Um I think with like producers and things of that nature, I was a little bit more involved in the interview process and maybe a little bit more of the, yeah, they're like the talent acquisition. I think like where I tried to help the most and like building out the team was I would try to go find this like really good accountant, really good lawyer, a really good travel agent. Yes, they would travel so much. It was like really important that they have someone that's like very skilled in. Building out a point, like building out credit cards and point loyalty points with all the airlines and all those things. So that was something that I helped build the infrastructure for with Yes Theory. Brought in a good lawyer, brought in a good accountant to make sure the books were clean. Brought in a good tax expert, things like, like that, so that the business infrastructure itself is really strong.
1: Gotcha. Cool. Okay, let's talk about Airac. So first off, uh, you mentioned like a funny story of how you you found him out through TikTok. How did uh, how did that come
0: about? Um, I was working with a friend who's also a manager in the TikTok space, and we were thinking about like starting something where we would collaboratively manage people who were TikTokers that were going to turn into YouTubers. And uh, he brought Eric up and was like, "Hey, you should check this guy out. He like just had this video with like Logan Paul blow up. You should chat with him." And I chatted with him, and it went really well. I was really impressed. By him. I well, had watched his videos. I thought Eric was going to be a lot more like arrogant. And like, I thought he was just going to be like this dude who, I don't know. Uh, I think I just had like ill intentions. Like I thought he was going to be this dude who like likes pranking people and making edgy content. And what I found was like this sweet, lovable dude who's so smart and so thoughtful and so compassionate about the people around him and so focused on building a really special and impactful channel for the world. And, uh, not to mention like incredibly passionate about YouTube and, and, and entrepreneurship. And so that made me really drawn to him and helping him on his story. And, uh, eventually it became like, you don't want to do TikTok, So like this collaborative thing that I have going on with my friend, it isn't a fit for you. And my friend kind of gave me the blessing on like, well, you should just go run it. Like, see if you can like help out and run through management with him. And so we did like a three-month trial together to see if like we would like one another which is something I do with a lot of the creators that I work with and it went really well and we like loved working together so then it was like off to the races. What point was
1: that in 2020 um, in because I know so 2020 he uh, had this goal to go from like zero to a million right which is fucking incredible <laughs> so what point in that
0: journey did you join? We started the three month trial when he was at like two hundred and fifty thousand subscribers, maybe three hundred thousand subscribers, which was probably I want to say April or May of twenty twenty.
1: Wow. Okay. That's 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 a great great time to hop on the wagon. <laughs> I was curious, yeah. like, cause like, I was I was surprised, like, just going back and looking at his old videos, like he was broke, right? Like around that time, he was he was broke, right? And he was kind of like. He was spending literally all of his savings on the videos he was making, right? So I was curious, like, if you, if you had any kind of like advising role and like, I know he bought like Logan Paul's couch for one of the videos, which is like just blowing, basically not blowing, but investing all of his money into like almost like a bet for that this video is going to go viral, right? Did you have any input on those decisions or just like, did he ask, uh, like, <laughs> does this make financial sense or, you know?
0: yeah i met him after the logan paul couches thing so that wasn't i met him right as soon as he did that okay um so i didn't have anything to do with that decision or i didn't have any insight i think like he would ask me about how money works for creators right he was like when does this he i mean eric asks incredible questions anyone who's met eric and has sat with him like eric is a very good question asker. (laughs) And uh, if you have knowledge about a particular topic, he does a phenomenal job, of like finding a way to draw that out of you. And that's why I think he's so smart. He would ask me questions around like, you've seen this done before. How, what are the steps here? Um, How am I going to make money? And when does that happen? And what does that look like? And I would try to tell him from experience, like, You're going to make this much from ad revenue. If you can get your views to here, if you start selling merch, like here's how much you'll make. And I was trying to have him understand what the business side of it will look like. That, that would be kind of to the extent of it. And a lot of it was also like me, he, yeah, he had no money. He had no way to pay his editor. He had no way to do a lot of the things he was doing. So part of my initial thing was like, okay, let's get money in the door. Let's go get some brand deals. And so that was like the first place I helped was can we get enough brand deals so that like, you can try to get a place. You can hire an editor. You can start putting money towards videos, and uh, obviously things started snowballing very quick. The brand deal started increasing. He was able to go get his own office and house. He was able to hire an editor, then another editor, then a producer, and so it, he worked his way up this ladder um, of like one step to the next. And I mean, still going now, right? Like hiring, just hired a short form like a person to run all short form content. Yeah, all these different things. Another editor. How big is Airax team? I want to say probably now around like six people, six, seven people.
1: What about Yes Theory? I'm always just curious, like a lot of the time it's like, oh, like it feels like, oh, it's just these people creating the videos. So it's always fascinating. Like Mr. Beast like employs close to 50 people, right? So it's like always fascinating to see what the machine looks like behind.
0: Yeah, I think Yes Theory is
1: probably around 10
0: and Airax team is probably around six, seven. Gotcha.
1: Okay. For Airax, so things started growing. At what point did the creator now community idea come to be and like what was the what was the inspiration behind that
0: yeah so obviously eric went from zero to a million subscribers in 2020 he accomplished that in like the most interesting way by stranding himself on an island and he did it like four days before january 1st to like just be you know the new year and uh that was what he was known for he was known as like the guy who did that even though this dream like all of us to some degree thought was crazy. We obviously my philosophy with creator management has always been to like start a business with the creator. And he, it was funny. We'd like sit Eric down so many times we would sit Eric down and say like, what are you passionate about outside of YouTube? What do you like to do? Do you like running? Do you like shopping? Do you like food? Do you like, like, what do you like? And he was like, I like YouTube. I only like YouTube. I only care about YouTube. He literally has a very small, like amount of other interests. That's hilarious. Um, And so we were like, okay, what are we going to freaking create here that like another interesting thing about Eric is that even though he was broke, Eric has spent tens of thousands of dollars on courses and learning programs about side hustle income, video production, content, you name it, editing he is like very much a person who invests in his knowledge. So we were like, okay, wait a second. Like if you really like YouTube, why don't we create like a course around helping other aspiring creators? That was a huge passion point for Eric was like helping Eric a year ago uh, when Eric had zero subscribers. And he felt very passionate about that. And then we started looking in the course space and we were initially going to launch like a very boring traditional course. And then we kind of thought like, We don't like those courses. I don't like traditional education. Eric doesn't like traditional education. Kate doesn't like traditional education. Why don't we think differently? And so that's how we kind of landed on this model of creator now, which was based around learning through iteration. And it was something Kate and I have always preached as managers is like, if you want to grow your channel, you have to become consistent and post at least weekly content. And that's like just our perspective. It's not necessarily like truth. Uh, In fact, but like we always thought and we would preach even to Eric, like Eric, just figure out how to post weekly content and make the weekly content as good as possible. That's how you'll grow your channel. And so the program is based around that. And how do we facilitate early stage creators to adopt that habit, which was, you know, basically we figured out let's build community, let's have accountability, let's have competition and awards and achievements. And uh, we launched the first cohort in May of 2021. We probably built it from March. Built it in March and April. Launched it in May, and that was the first cohort, and it went incredibly well. We had three hundred creators come through, and um, had a bunch of success stories. We just finished the third season, so we've done three cohorts and about to do our fourth.
1: That's amazing, and I mean, everyone I'm talking to in the space, like that's like an up and coming creator, has like gone through this course, and so it's just uh it's beautiful to see like the the ripple effect that you guys are having in the community.
0: Yeah, it's been, it's been phenomenal to see. And now we have like all these amazing success stories of like people going from like very small channels to like making it a full-time job. We've had like people hit a million views for the first time when they had never exceeded like 10,000, we've had people get jobs at other big YouTube channels, we've had people move all across the country and and get homes with one another in Los Angeles, even like people showing up in VidSummit all together repping creator now, sitting together, cheering together, like all of those things, we didn't expect to happen this fast. Um, And I think it just really shows like the strength of the community and the caliber of people that we have within the community. It's not just like people who are are joking around. It's like people who are passionate about making creativity and creatorship a full-time job for themselves. And I think that like takes a very special type of person to like want that. And I think that's what makes me passionate is these creators are like, today's entrepreneurs. Today's entrepreneurs, you know, differently than what they were doing in Waterloo in 2012, trying to build tech companies. Today, they're trying to become Mr. Beast. They're trying to become Eric. They're trying to become David Dobrik uh, and the Chamberlain. And I think that's like a, that's where I find passion and fulfillment is like, I can, I can try to help them get there. And I have like a rare set of experience in this space while it's still not developed i can hopefully help connect some dots and and answer some questions and provide some guidance and like helping someone turn that into like a the next big thing
1: yeah that's it's exciting man and you were mentioning before we started the call kind of the vision for for creator now that you're right now building the community it's funny because it's a course but really it's it's a ginormous community of people that are committed to becoming committed to becoming youtubers and professional creators right the, I guess the fact that you pay almost like filters people that are serious about it um, versus people that are not, you know? But you mentioned like the vision for Creator Now. Can you just recap that quickly about like creating different tools and really creating, I mean, you guys are, I don't know if uh, we can talk about this, but you guys are raising money
0: right now. So on the vision standpoint, it's actually interesting. Like we, we, it took us a while to even realize like we don't even want to call it a course. We like started thinking of it as a course and then we realized, oh my God, we shouldn't even call this a course. Um, we shouldn't even call it an education thing. It's about community and connection. I was chatting with someone at YouTube last night, and they were telling me... There's a book called The Talent Code, and the book talks about these places in the world where people become the very best at something. So there's like this town in Italy where all the greatest artists come from. And it's like this small town. Like why why in this small town do all the famous artists live and come out of it? It's like the highest proportion of top tier top artists come out of there. There's a town in Brazil where most of the top futsal players all come out of the small like favela in Brazil. Why? There's like, I forget what city it is in America, but there's like all the top skateboarders come out of this one city. Why? And the book basically says that in these places, there is a community of people that are all trying to accomplish one goal at the same time with one another. And that propels these people to one-up each other and grow together and facilitate accountability with one another. And that pushes everyone forward in a much faster way. And when that happens in a large density in one area, it propels momentum in a very fast way. And so there's other skate parks around the country, but if you don't get that similar dynamic, it doesn't happen the way it does in like this one skate park where like everyone just wants to become a full-time skateboarder. So anyway, long story short, that's what we're trying to build. Like, Is there a place where everyone wants to become a YouTuber so bad that together they can achieve that because it's all everyone thinks about? If you're in a small town in Wisconsin and you want to become a YouTuber, chances are no one around you gives a shit and believes you can do it. Um, And when you wake up in the morning, there's no one pushing you to go create a video that day or record content or edit all night or do add motion graphics and animations and effects but if you have that community online then you can find that motivation you can have people holding you accountable to doing that because you know that they're also doing it and if you don't do it you're going to get beat Um, and you can see that directly within these other group of people that want exactly what you want just as bad as you want it and they have similar sized channels that you do so the long scale of, of, I guess, like the vision for creator now is like continuing to develop this community and slowly starting to offer the community more and more tools, access to things um, that can help them grow their channels, but can also help them like meet one another. So one of the things we're doing for the first time in this next season of creator now in season four, which starts in November is we're actually once a week as a creator that's in the program, you're being connected to another creator in the program based on your channel what niche your channel is in and how big your channel is and where you live. That's awesome. So every single week, we're saying like, hey, Jeremy, meet Joseph. Joseph makes the exact same type of like business knowledge podcast that you do. It's around the same listenership. And by the way, you guys both live in like Chicago. Like you guys should connect and you guys get to chat. And maybe that turns into like a collab. Maybe that turns into like a new piece of knowledge. Maybe it turns into like you being like, Hey, uh, I'm trying to hire an editor. And that person being like, I'm trying to hire an editor. Uh, what problems are you facing? Let's share knowledge and share information because those people that are going through the same process have much more to talk about and learn from one another than these creators have chatting with like Eric and like Eric's even a better example. Cause he was recently in this position, but like, if you sit with yes, theory, Yes Theory hasn't like gone through a lot of the problems and challenges that a channel at 2,000 subscribers has gone through in years now. Yeah, So, so they can't help you. They're not going to know what to do or, or like really give you meaningful advice. The person that will give you really meaningful advice is the person that just faced that problem and accomplished the solution like, two months ago. So hopefully you can meet that person and that person could be like, oh, I just did that two months ago. Like, Here's what I did. Maybe it'll work for you.
1: That's amazing. it sounds too good to believe, <laughs> like it's almost like a social network for for youtubers, right? but like the fact that you can yeah. just connect with people that are like at exactly the same step as you are in the same niche and stuff it's incredible,
0: yeah, I mean, still much of it is a vision for now, obviously, like not every connection is the spot on exact thing you're looking for, but uh that's hopefully where we take it, and hopefully we build more and more analytics and data that can like make that as as tuned in as possible and can facilitate that stronger and stronger every season and i mean we're just getting started like we're like six months into this so hopefully raising money will allow us to build a team be able to like build out more projects and and tools in-house and really like i think shoot for the moon in terms of like the community if you want to be a full-time creator and I don't think that exists today. And I think Creator Now is probably the closest we have to it.
1: I'm excited to uh, to follow you guys' journey, man. For people who want to follow your path and become like a manager for creators, what advice
0: would you have for them as far as just getting started? I think like add value in some way. Figure out what that creator should be doing, or like a creator should be doing that most creators are not doing that you know how to do. If you don't know how to do anything that a creator should be doing, then learn (laughs) what that thing is. Go build a scale. Like, if you think, for example, like, here's like a really actionable thing. If you think creators should be using crypto or social tokens or something within the crypto space, right? Like tokenized communities, or like, that's my opinion. Creators should be looking into using crypto to grow their engagement in communities and products that they sell. Most creators don't know how the hell to do that because they're too focused on making content. I think a huge opportunity right now is for someone to say, I wanna become a manager. I'm gonna go learn everything about crypto, social tokens, tokenized communities, NFTs, etc." I'm gonna take that knowledge and I'm gonna to go to a creator and I'm gonna say, hey, I know how to do all of this. Why don't I help you do this? And then I'll participate in the revenue from it in what this way. Try it for three months if it doesn't work, I'll never talk to you again, leave me alone, I'll leave you alone forever. And then see if you can reach out to a creator and get them interested in that. And it's like, if you can position it in the right way, it should be a win-win. And then if that scales, and that works, well, now guess what, that creator trusts you, they know your work ethic, they know the value you bring, they know what it's like chatting with you and working through something. And you can say like, that can develop into management. I wouldn't advise like, like, if you're not a manager, and you don't Represent anyone to reach out and say, like, I want full management. Yeah. <laughs> give me every, give me a percentage of every dollar you make. No, bring them, bring them something that they should be doing, facilitate it for them, provide that value, and then let that expand into more.
1: It's almost like that should be coming from them. Like, hey, you've added so much value at this point. Like, do you want to help us with this other stuff? Right. 100%. And what's the ideal? I guess phase, you would say, let's talk about YouTube specifically. Like when you think a YouTube channel needs like a manager, like as far as subscriber wise?
0: Personally, I always say like at least 100,000 subscribers. I wouldn't, if I was a creator, I would not bring on a manager until I have 100,000 subscribers. It's kind of arbitrary, but I think that's the number I've always used. And then I would say a creator should find a manager between 100 000 to 500,000 subscribers. I think that's like a really great, especially if the channel is growing and it has momentum. That's a really great, place to find someone that can take a load of that business development and, and revenue generation off the table of the creator itself.
1: Sweet. Okay, cool. All right, man. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to ask you, where where can people find you? Like, what's the best place to follow you? I would say
0: Instagram or Twitter. Uh, both of those are at Zach Hanovar. Hanovar is spelled, well, Zach is spelled Z-A-C-K. Hanovar is spelled H-O-N-A-R-V-A-R
1: right. are you still doing those, uh, Professor Professor
0: uh, <laughs> Zach? Math, Math Mondays? Math no, Mondays I haven't done I haven't done one of those in a very long time, but I should do one of those. I have been thinking about it. I just have not had the time. But those are amazing. If so. People like those. Yeah. Hopefully, people looking let me know.
1: Yeah, for sure. All right, man. Thanks. There you have it. I hope you got something out of this interview. I'm really trying to make this as valuable as possible to you. So, if you have any feedback on how I can make this better. If you have any questions for me personally, I'll get back to you. Uh, reach out to me on Instagram. My handle is at Jeremy John Mary. You can also comment if you're watching on
0: YouTube. You can just comment below. All right. Thanks for listening and have an epic week.